Welcome to Global Trade Talks, brought to you by Kroll & Mori. Our hosts, Nicole Simonian and Ambassador Robert Holliman, share brief perspectives on key global issues in international trade, current events, business law, and public policy as they impact our lives. Our guest today is Dr. Jerry Green. Jerry is a leading voice for global engagement in Los Angeles. He has led the Pacific Council for more than a decade and prior to that was a partner at Best Associates in Dallas, a privately held merchant banking firm with global operations. Jerry also served as Director of International Programs and Development of the RAND Corporation, where he oversaw the activities of the Center for Asia-Pacific Policy, as well as the Center for Russia and Eurasia. He's an internationally recognized expert on foreign affairs, national security, and the Middle East. Welcome, Jerry. It's a real pleasure to have you join us today. I'd love to start by learning a little bit more about your journey from banking to global policy to foreign affairs. Well, thank you. I actually grew up fascinated with the Middle East for reasons I still can't tell you. It's probably reading National Geographic or something back in Boston when I was growing up. And ultimately, I spent six or seven years living in the Middle East, in Iran, in Egypt, and Israel. Got a PhD in political science with a specialization in the Middle East and was a rather traditional academic working on Middle East issues. I then went to the Rand Corporation and was a policy analyst working on all manner of things. Spent a brief interlude as a merchant banker in Dallas, which I, in many ways, learned more as a banker in two years than I did as a PhD academic in double-digit numbers. It was really a great education for me. And then came back to Los Angeles and joined the Pacific Council, which is where I am today. Great. Thank you for that background. Well, listen. As you're in your position and having followed these foreign affairs issues so closely, share some of your thoughts about the approach that the Biden administration is taking or likely to take on foreign policy. How do you think this is likely different from what some people may have expected? For example, ways in which it's not likely to be a return to the Obama administration foreign policy still early days, but how do you see this shaping up? Well, President Biden spoke at the Munich Security Forum last year and was telling the assembled array of the good and the great, the United States will be back. And what he meant by that, I, you know, it's hard for me to channel him, but I think I understood it, is not that the United States will be the way it was four years ago before the Trump administration, but rather, the United States is going to abandon this notion of America alone, or America first, which in fact is America alone, will embrace the importance of diplomacy, international engagement, global leadership, the championing of democracy, an interest in human rights, and all of the things that the rest of the world have come to expect of the United States. And that certainly can be translated into a political observation but it's also a rather technocratic observation. Those of us who make our living studying international affairs for decades and decades and decades tend to be somewhat of one mind on this issue. Rex Tillerson, briefly Secretary of State, and Mike Pompeo, his successor, came very close to destroying the United States Department of State, which is a, a global treasure, a really important organization. And the intelligence community was badly hurt. It was a, again, I'm sure this will sound political, but a flat earth mentality. 
which really undermined the ability of not only the United States to operate globally, but for example, why would you eliminate the global pandemic expert at the National Security Council at the White House when you have a global pandemic with its origins in China? And then when you find the origins in China, why would you call it the Kung flu and somehow be sort of not only racist, but unengaged? So that's really, I think, the kind of things that Biden is talking about. I am certain this will sound like a political observation. Let's reconvene in a year. I'll have lots of critical things to say about the Biden administration. I'm a cynic. I have no friends. I don't like anybody. But having said that, I must confess that for people in my industry, which is yours, Ambassador Holliman, and yours, Madam Attorney, because you are both global in your day-to-day activities, is like a breath of fresh air. I believe in global U.S. leadership. It's really that simple. I do not want to cede that responsibility to the Russians. I don't want to cede it to the Chinese, and so on and so on and so forth. So... Well, thank you. And speaking of, there's just so much uncertainty, not just internationally, as we wait and see what will unfold, but right here in the U.S. I would love to hear your observations on how do we rebuild trust within our own country and our communities. I think that our political system is fundamentally flawed and broken. I hope it's not irreparably broken, but the three of us The ambassador is sitting on the East Coast. We're sitting on the West Coast. There's a lot of people in the middle of this country who feel that we are inattentive to their expectations. We are inattentive to their concerns. They feel sidelined. They feel disrespected. They've been, I'm trying to remember what Hillary Clinton called them. I, I can't remember, but she spoke disrespectfully about people in the middle of the United States. And we really need to be more broadly inclusive. It's not an event, it's a process. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And so I think it's really important to try and achieve this. I mean, what we saw at the Capitol recently, this insurrection in which law enforcement people participated, U.S. military veterans participated. To look at this as merely aberrant and not a reflection of a deeper malaise in this country I think is short-sighted. I'm a Middle East specialist, so this is so far above my pay grade. But as, you know, an educated consumer who reads a lot of newspapers, who does not tweet, who does not have a Facebook page, I'm not involved in social media. I'm a very simple, old-fashioned person. I'm deeply disturbed by what's happening here. And I ask myself, do I share any responsibility in what's going on? And sadly, I think I do. My friends and my colleagues are very much like the three of us. And there are Americans out there who I just, I don't know them. I don't recognize them. And I would welcome the opportunity to do it. I don't want to figure out how to do truth and reconciliation commissions after something awful has happened. I want to find out what we need to do so we will not need truth and reconciliation commissions. And that's hard work. That's hard work. That is. And thank you so much for that. I think we all think about how do we play a role and how do we help moving forward, as you said, taking this a bit even closer to where we sit in proximity. We're here in Los Angeles. I'd love to just get some thoughts on our relationship with Mexico and Canada. How do you view not only fitting into the new administration, but really just particularly given where we are in Los Angeles, if you could talk about how we fit in as a city and strategically what we can do to play a role 
happily. Los Angeles is arguably the capital of the Pacific Rim. It is a Latin American city. We are closer to Mexico City than we are to Washington. We are the second city for every group of people who have immigrated to the United States that you can count. I mean, you name it. You know, we're the second Thailand, the second Korea, Armenia, Iran, Mexico, China, on and on and on. We are the most diverse city in the world. Our mayor, who's a pretty good guy and is bilingual and is a former Rhodes Scholar, always says that if Los Angeles didn't exist, we'd have to create it. We are, by definition, an international entity. And Mexico and Canada are especially near and dear and important to us. President Trump's first foreign trip was to Saudi Arabia. I am hoping that President Biden's first trip will be to Mexico or Canada. I know Vice President Harris had a conversation yesterday with Justin Trudeau in Ottawa. I know that President Biden has had a conversation with AMLO in Mexico City. I am eagerly waiting to see who our ambassador to Mexico will be, who our ambassador to Canada will be. If we think about it, we share a region. We are North America. And if we act as North Americans in certain circumstances, you know, as well as Americans and Californians and Angelinos and so forth, it expands our global reach. And Mexico may be a different country, but we share a region with Mexico. I'm from Boston studied French in high school and, and sort of grew up on the east, northeast uh, part of the United States. But I realized that the last 40 years of my life, I've lived within 100 miles of Mexico, uh, near the border, in Tucson when I was a professor at Arizona, in Dallas and now in Los Angeles. I don't speak Spanish, and I don't think of myself as being as expert on Mexico as I should. The Canadians, same thing. You know, the, the daughter of the CEO of Huawei is under house arrest in Vancouver. Two Canadian business people are in deep lockdown someplace in China where they are basically hostages to punish the Canadians for supporting the United States. So the disrespect in which we've treated the Canadians, who've done remarkable things on our behalf and with us, that is in our rearview mirror, which is where it should be. And the Canadians also on human rights issues in Saudi Arabia have been much more forthcoming than we were. Mr. Khashoggi was murdered in Istanbul, wrote for the Washington Post. There was an irony that the Canadian government was more concerned about him than the American government was at the time. And that's simply unacceptable. And again, the Canadians have stepped up. So geography ain't going anywhere. It's not changing. We don't need a wall with Mexico. We do not in Los Angeles refer to Mexicans as criminals and rapists, as others have done. We need bridges. We need bridges. And I'm really glad you asked about Canada and Mexico because they are so uniquely important to us, all Americans, but particularly as Californians. Jerry, we would be remiss if we also didn't talk about some of the international implications of the COVID pandemic. I mean, this is sort of the true definition of something that's not only an individual crisis, a community crisis, but it's a global challenge. And we've certainly seen these issues playing out very different based on geography. We're seeing them play out differently based on access to vaccines. Share some of your thoughts about how we can potentially be more unified 
in a global approach to dealing with this pandemic and how that sets the stage for future pandemics that were certainly inevitable. What do you think the U.S. can be doing? How can we enable better healthcare across borders? And what do you see as opportunities or thoughts around the new administration here in the U.S. and the role they play both here at home, but also the role of leadership? After a disastrous start predating the Biden administration, vaccinations appear to be very slowly on the uptick. And if there is any argument on the significance and importance of globalization, a global pandemic is the best example imaginable. We need to vaccinate Americans. Everybody needs to be vaccinated. It is our interest and our interest for people to be vaccinated. Israel is the most vaccinated country in the world. The Palestinian territories are not. It's in Israel's interest to get Gaza vaccinated, to get the West Bank vaccinated. I mean, that record of achievement by Israel, which is remarkable, it is in Israel's interest to make certain that they can vaccinate everybody that's within their reach. We in Los Angeles, we've got to vaccinate ourselves, obviously, but we need to help with Mexico as much as we can. There were attempts to withhold vaccine from Iran, a country of 80 million people. This is not a political gesture. This is the, you know, it's like global warming. If you live on this planet, you are not immune to the implications of these challenges. And therefore, we should be working hard to get the vaccine to the Iranians, to everybody, to everybody. It's not as if we just reserve them for ourselves. And there are gross inequities here. If you look at the morbidity rates amongst communities of color in the United States, it is absolutely awful. I mean, African-American communities, Latino community, and lesser extent, the Asian community, the morbidity rates are much higher than they are amongst white people. I mean, everybody I know in my peer group has gotten vaccinated because they have advantages. They have cars, they have computers and iPads and resources and, and so forth. And we need to broaden it here at home. And I can't make the decision, should it be teachers or people over 60? I mean, those are really Solomonic decisions that are far beyond my expertise. This is a global problem. We need to support vaccination everywhere. The UAE, it's interesting, the United Arab Emirates is heavily, heavily vaccinated, very high percentage. They're using the Chinese vaccine. The Russian vaccine, the Sputnik V, apparently has close to 90% efficacy. Uh, these are all things that we should be, we should applaud, we should support. International organizations are fundamentally flawed, but I certainly would not live without them. The WHO is important, the United Nations is important, and so forth. And the CDC used to be the go-to institution globally, except for the last four years. So that's coming back. And I see a lot of these experts on TV talking about COVID-19 in the United States. I must say there's something reassuring about it. I haven't been told to inject chlorine into my veins or to hold my breath or it's going to go away by Easter. And the scientists are doing their job and they're listening but we got to catch up. But it is not simply an American issue. That's my point. We need to provide global leadership, and I hope we will. Jerry, you raise issues around race. You raise issue around diversity. You raise issues around climate. 
any last thoughts about how those fit into our discussions broadly around foreign affairs, foreign relations, trade. And I also want to make a quick plug for one of the great things I think the Pacific Council does, and from my recent experience, is also bringing in some younger voices who are working at the intersection of trade and foreign policy. And certainly, too often, we see sort of the same people talking about the same issues. And I personally think part of how we get more diverse in foreign policy is having more voices and taking on more issues. But with that very leading question and my plug for the Pacific Council, welcome your thoughts about how we do a better job of bringing these things together. Well, thank you for the plug, which I appreciate. We work hard and Nicole Simonian is one of our members. And so we're very proud of our members and it's a community collective effort. The one thing that I would say that's changed since I've grown up in our profession is there used to be a distinction between domestic issues and international issues. And I believe that that distinction no longer exists. So we just yesterday had an event with the mayor of Los Angeles. He gives under the flag of the Pacific Council an annual speech on the global state of LA. And it's LA as an international actor. And the person interlocuting with him was the head of the United Way, a woman named Elise Spewitt. And one would think, well, why would the head of the United Way interview somebody on international affairs? And the reason is that the distinction between international and domestic simply no longer exists. They are the same. The head of the Urban League in Los Angeles is a member of my board. He was also the United States ambassador to ICAO, the International Civil Aeronautics Authority in Montreal, because he was on the board of the airport. And so if the United States wants to play a global role, if we want to talk about the situation of the Uyghurs in China, we want to talk about the Rohingya in Myanmar slash Burma, we want to talk about, you name some group that's being oppressed, we better be darn certain that our own house is in order, or at least that we're able to speak with honesty and candor about what's happening here. You're a business person. You go to LAX, you pick up somebody who's going to invest in Los Angeles. You take them to the Peninsula Hotel on Little Santa Monica Boulevard in Beverly Hills. And I guarantee on that road, the ride from LAX to BH, you can say, how come you got so many people sleeping on the street? Look what's going on under this bridge. Look at these people at the traffic light. Look at these people who are begging and panhandling and so forth. I mean, this is LA. The streets are paved with gold, but the streets are filled with homeless people. Then they'll say, where does your child go to school? And you say, well, I live in Los Angeles. My child goes to private school. Why doesn't your child go to PS 27 somewhere in Los Angeles? And then we talk about our public school system. And I'm not talking about our tax rates, and I'm just talking about human capital issues all over this country. These are national security challenges. They really are. Our country is not as competitive as it can be globally if we don't get our own house in order. And to reserve the right for us to speak about what's happening elsewhere, we need to deal with these. Uh, let me give you again, I'll end with the issue that we started with. Biden had a conversation with Putin. He mentioned Navalny, who was just sentenced to two years. I guarantee that the response from Putin was, 
How dare you? Look at these mobs of insurrectionists, these white supremacists who overran the Capitol and were threatening to kill Vice President Pence to attack Speaker Pelosi and so on and so forth. And how do you respond to that? What's the response? I mean, we could respond, but at the end of the day, what people see happening, if we're standing up for democracy in Hong Kong, which we are, we should be standing up for democracy in the United States. So all you have to do is say, look at the morbidity rates of COVID-19 based on race. I mean, there was a story yesterday about the NFL. I don't know if you saw this, that professional football players have head injuries, but the metrics they use for African-American football players is different than the one they use for white football players. I mean, it was unbelievable to me. And so these are things that we need to be aware of and we need to be addressed. And if you're international, you should be concerned about so-called domestic issues. And if you're interested in so-called domestic issues, you should be concerned about international issues. So sorry to go on so long on this, but on the Pacific Council Board, we have the head of the United Way, the head of the Urban League, the head of the California Community Foundation, and all sorts of other allegedly domestic actors because they're not domestic. I mean, there's no such thing in life. It's all whole cloth in Los Angeles. And it's something that Americans need to, I think, be aware of. And perhaps that's what we're missing in terms of getting ourselves in touch with the middle part of the country, which really is not very happy with our leadership and what we've done and so forth. Well said. Thank you. Thank you so much again for joining us today. We like to end our podcast by always asking our guests, what book are you enjoying or hoping to read sometime soon? You know, this is a terrible admission, but one of my kids, I remember when I was a professor at Michigan, University of Michigan, I brought one of my little girls who was, I don't know, five or six years old to class with me. It was my Arab-Israeli class, I'll never forget. And one of the students asked my little daughter, what kind of work does your dad do when he's not being a professor? And my daughter said, oh, my dad, he doesn't work. He just reads all day. And interestingly, my reaction to what's been going on in this country politically, I think they call it doom scrolling. I spent a vast amount of time reading newspapers, far more than is good for me. And a book that I would finish in no time at all takes me forever to read. And I almost feel guilty reading a book because I need to see what's going on in Washington. My preoccupation this week, just so you'll know, is who's being appointed to the Biden administration. And as I let on earlier, who are the ambassadors? Who's going to be our ambassador to China? There are divisions amongst Team Biden on China. Who's the ambassador going to be? I've heard all sorts of stories. So there's a page in the Washington Post, which I have saved about appointments. And I read that far more every day than I do books that are piling up on my Kindle. So I'm sure I sound like an ignoramus, but I'm sharing a little psychodrama in my life, which is my changes in my reading habits. I think it makes perfect sense. And I don't think I would have expected a different answer, actually. (laughs) Well, we want to thank you for joining us. And again, it's great to hear from you as always. And also to bring in the point of view from the West Coast is always so wonderful too. So thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Jerry. Great. This is great. Thanks for listening to Global Trade Talks, brought to you by Kroll & Mooring. You can access more information about our guests today in our show notes or at kroll.com slash global trade talks.
You can find all our episodes and subscribe to our series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.